0: ICA presents. The noise you just heard is the sound of the interrobang, A non-standard punctuation mark, the interrobang's appearance is its explanation, an exclamation mark superimposed directly on a question mark. The theme for the 2022 International Communication Association Annual Conference – One world, one network ends with an Interobank. The symbol simultaneously celebrates and problematizes the oneness in the modern age of global communication. This podcast series features episodes hosted by the six co-chairs of the conference theme. In this episode, one of the co-chairs, Shakuntala Banaji, explores and critiques the conference theme from a global south perspective with a panel of guests she selected. Yes, Shakuntala.
1: Welcome to this ICA conference-themed podcast. Um, we're going to be talking here today with my amazing guests. They are going to introduce themselves, but let me introduce myself. I'm Shakundala Banaji. I'm a Professor of Media, Culture and Social Change at the LSE, where I've been for the last 10 years. So the recent work that I've been doing looks at online disinformation and the repercussions for communities who are minoritized and excluded. I was in discussion with my other co-chairs and we were talking about whether the interrobang should actually preface with the question mark or with the exclamation mark. If it's a question mark, the conference is problematizing. If it's an exclamation mark, it almost is celebrating it. It's interesting continuation of a debate which has been going on now for two or three decades in media and communication studies about the notion which comes from Marshall McLuhan's notion of a global village. Um, I, for one, found myself both attracted and repelled. What I'd like to invite you all three to do, starting with Laura, is just to comment a little bit on your gut responses.
2: Well, uh, my name is Laura Guimarães Corrêa. I am an associate professor in the social communications department at uh, Universidade Federal de Minas Gerais, which is the federal university of a large state in Brazil. My recent research is intersectionality and communication, race, gender, and empowerment in the neoliberal context. I, am, I was happy to see the interrogation mark actually, it uh, shows that at least there is no certainty of this ideal that this can be confronted and can be contested, can be denied, considering that the white, uh, rich, uh, northern or western and liberal subject is is the reference, right? You're not considering that there are others. I am pro the uh, interrogation mark and not the exclamation because of
3: that. My name is Linji Magnozo. I'm uh, probably more of a development practitioner than a communicator. And I'm based right in the center of Melbourne at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, where I teach in the School of uh, Media and Communication. In 2008, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, after the global financial crisis, a group of students at the University of Manchester established what came to be known as the post-crash economic society. Students from other universities picked up this fight. At The center of their argument was that one of the reasons we had had experienced the global financial crisis was because the experts couldn't see it. And the reason they they could not see it was because our universities, and especially the social sciences, have been more shaped by Western social science theory. And the way we teach it, and that, that, that includes media and communication, It seems as if the rest of the world does not exist at all.
4: My name is Fatma. I'm a PhD candidate at the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. When I first heard the conference theme, the first question in my head was one network for whom? And and it seemed... So for a second it seemed to me like a slogan from a telecommunications company one world one network i mean so i appreciate the, uh, the 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 question mark and the exclamation mark at the end i was involved in doing field work in india in 2019 in the run up to the elections with the team of researchers which we were working in two different cities Interview after interview, what came what we came across was opposition activists complaining that they were being shadow banned on social media or that there when they complained on these different platforms against hate speech that they were facing or abuse that they were facing, uh, that the, the post didn't get flat down. When we think of all these questions, those, that is how I would situate you know one world, one network. I think we take for granted the
1: idea that all of us belonging to a single community might mean that our our humanity is prefaced, that our humanity is the thing which comes to the surface, our commonalities uh, are there, and that community is always a thing which is a public good. However, in the work that I and several of my students and many of my colleagues have done over the past two decades, it's become eminently clear that actually the world isn't moving in a direction that every group of people can be safely, fairly and justly included in what would be known as a global community. In fact, let's be blunt, settler colonialism still Um, reigns supreme in many parts of the world. And while in some universities, we are having conversations um, which make decolonization into a metaphor, actually what is going on in the ground in many places is that boots and machine guns are stomping past people's doors, and that things that we thought we had got over, such as the lynching of people from minority faiths and Um, Races in places are now taking over, being filmed and put onto the internet as a badge of honor for the far right. So we aren't um, in any way in a place where we can say that one world is an equal world, or that one network is a network which we all equally access.
3: There is this illusion of a united world existing somewhere. It has never existed, at least for me as a Black person in history, the issue of data, especially in development, you have, for example, Ushahidi and other crowdsourcing initiatives where local people in communities, probably there is you know, election violence, they're taking pictures, they're posting, these pictures are being posted. The consequence might be you're posting this picture, you might be arrested, the police might use it as evidence. These are ethical concerns with regards to how data is used and kept whether even the people who are captured in this data are given the opportunity to understand the implications of using the data uh, reusing the data in the future yes we can talk about the penetration of internet and what you know uh, what what wonders that penetration has done but there are serious ethical concerns that may put lives at, at risk as well so for now let me stop there
4: Uh, I would like to talk about a story which happened in India two weeks ago. So a video of an elderly Muslim man being assaulted uh, became viral. And in the video, his beard was being cut off. And later he was talking about what had happened to him and that he was made to say these religious slurs. And one of the things that stood out to me in that story was that his attackers also showed him videos of them assaulting other Muslims and said that, see, we have already assaulted other and killed other Muslims and nothing has happened to us. So once this video became very uh, popular on social media and circulated, two days later or something, the news that came out was that the the UP police, which is where the incident had taken place, had filed FIRs against journalists and independent news outlets and opposition leaders who had shared the tweets Uh, talking about it or shared the video of of his testimony. News of these incidents are just very, very commonplace, almost every day. Sorry,
1: Laura, did you want to come back on that?
4: Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking that this
2: uh, Datafication and surveillance and etc. and uh, technologies like facial recognition—they are usually used against the most vulnerable populations, such as Black community in the communities in the favelas, but also it's important for, some, for these people to be connected and to be seen by the state through technologies. Otherwise they're invisible to our policymakers, et cetera.
3: Most of the time we are discussing a cell phone. People talk about the ability to tweet, the ability to do this, the ability to do that. We talk about this connectivity, consumption, the focus is on how people are using the cell phone. It's good. In many places, people are able to tweet and talk about things the public broadcasters or the community broadcasters uh, would never broadcast. It allows people to exercise that freedom. But at the same time, there are also the other parts that we really focus on. So for example, for this cell phone to be produced, how many people have been exploited? How many women have been killed? Because we know we have all these militias in Eastern Congo killing people, looking for minerals to produce the cell phone. So, if you're looking at the the, the, the production process of, of of this cell phone as 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 a cultural product, you find that it is more oppressive than it liberates people.
1: Um, I mentioned at the beginning that um, I had some questions about ICA in the past, and that I've often wondered, you know, who is it for? And you've asked Fatma, who is the network for? And Laura, you have a center which is made up of primarily. Black researchers researching racism and the intersection with various other types of inequality. So we might be marginalized because we don't work in a large Global North University. We may be marginalized because we come from an ethnic minority or a religious minority within the Global North. We might be marginalized because we're queer or trans. We might be a working class academic from any part of the globe who has struggled to get into academia and then doesn't feel comfortable in the whining and dining spaces or the Zoom spaces of an ICA conference. Or we may be a struggling academic who knows that their research is dissenting and might um, anger or irritate some of the professional academics, the powers that be, the intellectual leaders of their time. I want to use also in tribute to Lauren Berlant, who has just passed away very sadly. I want to use the notion from their book, Cruel Optimism to ask whether perhaps just the very notion of an international communication association, which is for all academics, however um, they are positioned within the system is actually a form of cruel optimism. It sort of brings us to an impossible Imaginary or which erases ideas about power and precarity, which erases ideas about racism, sexism and homophobia within the fold um, of academia. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on how a large organization which aims to be an international communication association could do better by those of us in marginalized positions? Is it, is it possible? And if it is possible, what would you, each of you like to see? Lara, I'll come to you first.
2: I've been to ICA uh, conference twice and both times it was um, in very expensive cities, just one in London and one in San Diego. So first of all, just to be in these cities is hard for someone who's not, who does not live in the global north and has a good salary as a teacher or as a scholar in a university. Even working for a large university in Brazil, I cannot um, complain much about my salary in Brazilian terms. But for in dollars or pounds, this would be uh, just uh, unaffordable. I, I have I had funding to go at uh, at the time, but anyway, uh, the impression I had when I went there, put uh, in person, it was very homogeneous. I felt like a fish out of water there, and. And I'm not a student, I'm not young. It was not just like that in every other conference I've been to, but this at say it was very, very clear to me that I was not in my place. I did not feel comfortable there. We're still in the middle of the pandemic in, in Brazil, like in India. The problem is not solved. In a more um, symbolic and theoretical and an institution that wants to be uh, inclusive has to recognize difference and not see differences as
3: a problem. The first question we need to ask when we are given the opportunity to talk about an institution, an organization, is what does this organization stand for? It's a strategic question. Who has access to it? I'm not talking about access like being a member, but people with power. Because sometimes I've gone to some of these international conferences it's like a sorority. It's like people who are coming from a particular part of the world, political, political part of the world, come there to meet and talk to themselves, to engage with each other. And yes, others can come to, to listen, but there is that, that kind of you know, feeling where you feel, perhaps I'm a little bit an outsider here. So the question of access is very important, but also the question of participation. When these meetings are held, who decides on the outline of these presentations? Who is calling for abstracts? Who are actually reviewing these abstracts? Th- th- these are critical processes because there is oftentimes an implicit bias in terms of the way we read a, an abstract, for example, in, in, in my, my opinion, it's a question of challenging the orthodox discourses that have governed our teaching, governed our research, governed the way we even publish this is another area we even haven't we even haven't touched the, the journals western journals who is the editor who is on the editorial board what are the papers that are accepted what are the justifications given for rejecting certain papers and you find that if i'm writing about indigenous knowledge for example i wouldn't get into most of these journals even though they call themselves journals of communication so it's the the, the the issue of access the issue of participation and we also have to talk about indicators because if we have to transform these institutions or these spaces we must have indicators of what success looks like, like like because otherwise most of the time there is so much bullshit or so much hamburg where people talk about oh we're going to transform it they put a few people you know maybe who look different who smell different who look like me you, you you are put in certain positions, but you find that you are restricted in terms of the perspectives that can shape your work. You can't. You, you you're given a certain framework. So the, the, we have to have actual indicators. What what is what does transformation look like? This is a very deceptive word. It's a very disempowering word. You know, people have been transformed. What what are we talking about? So it's it's. I think it's an important time to. To, to challenge certain things. I like applying the development um, uh, treatment when I hear about a concept. So for example, if the concept is ICA, International Communication Association, my first question is which communication? Whose communication? And if you understand the, the, the history of Western media and communications, mm-hmm. you realize it was Will Bashram at the center of everything from his you know days at Chicago. I think it was, and then at Illinois, establishing the field of communication in the 1940s. That's a kind of communication we are talking about. But even before he established the field of communication, he was working for the American government in the office of war information. So that's that's a context, that's a kind of communication we, we, we begin to talk about. It's a kind of communication that emphasizes the power of technology. It's a kind of, you know, and it, it, it immediately requires us to think about certain research methodologies, theories that we're going to use, the way of looking at the world, and you find that even the interpretation.
4: My friend and I have a joke where she says that, you know, these days you have to be a PhD influencer, and uh, not it's not about being a scholar, but you have to be this influencer, you know, with a social media presence and networking. Otherwise, there's no chance of even making it. <laughs> um, but actually, I thought I, I I was thinking of the fact that, you know, they are brilliant scholars and thinkers and students and researchers and people who have been putting all their thinking into practice. I thought I would use this platform to take some of their names today. So people like. Gulfesha Fatma, Umar Khalid, Khalid Sefi, the Bhima Koregaon, 16 people like Anand Terp Sudha Bhardwaj, Rona Wilson, and countless, countless others. Sometimes there is a feeling of abandonment by the world that this has been normalized. And that I think that if tomorrow you, Shaku, or I were to be arrested, that, you know, it is, we would be on our own. And so if I had a vision for ICA and for our discipline, uh, I wish that we would find ways to work in mutual cooperation with different struggles, to be in relation with the communities that we are connected to beyond them as research participants, and to think of ways to be in solidarity and to work together.
1: Thank you, Fatma, for reminding us of a politics and an ethic of solidarity um, even I heard someone say um, that we need to be more than just in solidarity, we need to be co-conspirators and co-dissidents with people, and that means that we are putting ourselves at risk, and I think increasingly the kinds of academic spaces that I navigate, and perhaps Linje and Laura also navigate, are ones where we are divided not just by class and race and precarity, but also by which of us is willing to put our embodied lives, our families at risk by doing or saying something um, in solidarity or in. Um, Mm co-conspiratorship with people who are fighting exactly the kinds of democratic struggles you talked about. If our association cannot bring itself to be in solidarity, not just with Black Lives Matter movements in various different countries, not just with indigenous people who are finding ancestors who've been murdered and who are now buried outside residential schools, but also with the millions of black and brown people who are in the global South and the recipients of the military jackboot of the many different regimes, including their own. I think if we can't show that solidarity, we have failed. And so in a way, I speak to you as someone who feels that these kinds of international associations could do much, much more. That's why I'm here. And I don't lend my body or my name or my labor freely. I lend it on a promise that something will change. And when it doesn't, I will fight the association too. And that's the way I think maybe we could come to a conclusion today. I'm going to wrap up by thanking my guests, Linjay Manozo, Laura Guimara's Correa, and Fatma Khan so much for being with us today, for giving a part of yourself, a very strong part of yourself to the podcast. Thank you all, thank you so much.
0: One World One Network is sponsored by the Annenberg Center for Collaborative Communication at both the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. This podcast series is presented by the International Communication Association in the lead up to the 2022 annual conference in May. For more information about our participants on this episode, as well as our sponsor, please see the show notes. Our producer is Nick Song. Our executive producer is Aldo Diaz Caballero. The theme music is by John Preston. Thanks for listening. In the next episode, we will continue exploring the conference's theme from the perspective of the conference's other co-chairs.